Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of drug use and disordered eating. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. Lonnie Tepper waited for his meal, still riding the post-show high. He may not have been competing in the bodybuilding championship, but as the MC, he still felt the pressure. A host could make or break an event, and Lonnie thought of himself as a good one. The show today had gone just about perfect. The only bump in the road had been Craig Titus's tantrum at the end. It was ridiculous. The guy had come in second place for crying out loud. Then, almost as if Lonnie had summoned him with his thoughts, Craig walked into the restaurant. He wasn't tall, but at nearly 300 pounds of solid muscle, he was still pretty intimidating. And the second he walked in, Craig made a beeline for Lonnie's table. You are the reason I lost, he shouted. Lonnie had known Craig for years, but he'd never seen the man this angry. Craig's face rippled with rage. He could snap Lonnie in half like a twig, and there was nothing anyone could do to stop him. The look on Craig's face said it all. He was out for blood. Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a Spotify original from Parcast. In the legal definition, a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore how passionate relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a husband and wife become killer and victim, or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This week, we'll talk about the rise of Craig Titus and Kelly Ryan, the king and queen of fitness. They each made it to the top in their own way, and though the going was tough, once they found each other, the pair was inseparable. Next week, we'll follow Craig and Kelly as they bring aspiring dancer Melissa James into their glamorous world. When their relationship buckles under the pressure of their careers, Melissa finds herself caught between two volatile personalities with no way out. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Hi, I'm Blair. Want to hear something scary? Join me as I read the creepiest urban legends, folk tales, and ghost stories that I learn on my travels around the world and that we receive from listeners like you. But only if you think you can handle it. Listen on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, sweet screams. 
It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. When he was a kid, no one would have pegged Craig Titus as a future bodybuilder. He was always on the small side, standing just five feet, six inches by his junior year of high school. Only 130 pounds soaking wet, Craig felt pressure to be more masculine. His dad, Michael, supported the family by digging tunnels for storm drains, sewers, and subways. Years of manual labor had earned him rippling muscles. In Craig's young mind, that was what it meant to be a man. And when he joined the wrestling team in high school, Craig discovered the weight room could make his dream come true. Soon, he was spending all his free time pumping iron. The new routine opened the door to an entirely new world, and soon Craig discovered the sport of bodybuilding. By the 1980s, it wasn't as popular as it had been a decade before. Arnold Schwarzenegger had retired from the sport to focus on acting, and mainstream attention had followed. But the shine wasn't entirely gone, and for many, bodybuilding was still cool. With Schwarzenegger gone, there was room at the top for the next big celebrity. Young Craig Titus wanted nothing more. So rather than going to college, Craig went to work with his dad after high school. Just doing manual labor for a living wasn't enough though. Craig still spent every minute of his free time in the gym. Yet even with such an intense schedule, Craig found time for a social life too. Years of training brought gains in confidence as well as in muscle. In 1985, the 20-year-old found himself head over heels. The object of his affection was 26-year-old Susan Bell. We don't know much about their relationship, but in August of 1985, they were married and three years later, she gave birth to twins, a boy and a girl. That same year, 1988, Craig entered his first amateur competition, the Houston Bodybuilding Championship. Since high school, he'd added 50 pounds of muscle to his frame. At 180 pounds, he entered the competition in the middleweight class. The competition was Craig's first chance to see if he had a professional future in bodybuilding. So he gave his all to the performance. In the end, there was nothing left to do but wait for the results. Amazingly, not only did he win in his weight class, but first-timer Craig Titus took first in the overall competition. He was officially a champion, in Houston at least. It was an incredible high and one he couldn't wait to experience again. Unfortunately, 1989 had other plans for Craig and his family. In January, his infant son died suddenly. In later interviews, Craig told reporters the cause was sudden infant death syndrome, or SIDS. In the wake of the tragic loss, his relationship with Susan deteriorated. By July of 1989, they were officially divorced. To get through this difficult time, 
Craig turned his attention back to bodybuilding. He hit the gym harder than ever, burying his feelings beneath layers of muscle. Before we get into Craig's psychology, please note, I'm not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but we have done a lot of research for the show. It takes a lot to deal with something as traumatic as the loss of a child. Though people like Craig are only doing their best to get through the grief, they often fall into bad habits. Psychologists call these maladaptive coping strategies. The list of potential negative behaviors is long, but most of them boil down to one thing, fast relief from the bad feelings. At first, these strategies work, Craig probably felt a lot better in the gym than he did trying to process his intense emotional pain. But in the long run, it may have done more harm than good. Long-term reliance on maladaptive coping strategies has actually been linked to higher levels of psychological distress. He may have not realized it, but by escaping to the gym, Craig might have been prolonging his own suffering. But despite everything happening behind the scenes, Craig's career was taking off. He won another competition in Houston in 1989. The following year, he placed third in the ESPN Tournament of Champions, his first contest in the heavyweight class. Each victory came with increased media attention. More handsome than your average gym rat, Craig looked right at home in magazines and on TV. In 1992, the 27-year-old caught the eye of an ESPN producer who was happy to feature him in segments and shows. The next year, Craig scored his first magazine cover, though he'd yet to achieve pro status. It was clear that he was a star, and he acted like one. In 1994, after a string of casual girlfriends, Craig embarked on his first high-profile relationship with Playboy model and fellow bodybuilder, Debbie Halo. Though he loved seeing his name in print, the thing Craig truly coveted remained out of reach. More than anything, he wanted to earn his pro card. To do that, he'd need to take first overall in a national competition sanctioned by the National Physique Committee. He had come frustratingly close, finishing second in the USA Championships and the National Championships in 1994. To Craig, second place was just the first loser, and the back-to-back -back losses were a blow to his fragile ego. After the National Championship, he was so bitter that he reached out to a reporter friend to talk trash about the man who'd beat him. This was something one simply didn't do in the bodybuilding community. In competition settings, there were strict rules about behavior and decorum. Offstage, athletes were still expected to maintain an air of respectability, especially in public. But Craig didn't care about making nice, he only cared about winning. The reporter tempered Craig's statements for the piece, but the incident was still revealing. It seemed like the only thing that matched Craig's ego was his massive insecurity. So, perhaps as a way of drowning his sorrows, Craig turned to vice. People were already talking about his womanizing. Soon, there were rumors about his hard-partying lifestyle, but no one really knew how bad his choices had become. 
That was until September of 1994, when he was arrested for his role in an ecstasy scheme. Authorities intercepted a package containing nearly 400 tablets of the drug with Craig's fingerprints all over it. Though they couldn't prove Craig had mailed the package himself, federal agents had enough evidence to scare him into assisting their investigations. Though he complied, Craig was still indicted for conspiracy to distribute that December. He continued working with authorities and in April of 1995, he came to an agreement with the prosecution. In exchange for pleading guilty, his sentencing was postponed for six months. Even in the middle of such intense legal drama, Craig continued to train and compete. In July of 1995, a year after his embarrassing second place finishes, he made a third attempt for his pro card at the USA Championship. Luckily, news of Craig's drug case hadn't been officially broadcasted to the bodybuilding community. Muscle magazines continued featuring him without mentioning his case. Instead, the magazines pinned Craig as the favorite to win the championship. Now 30 years old, he was truly a heavyweight at an impressive 270 pounds. With full confidence, he flexed and posed before the judges and an adoring crowd. And then it was time for the results. The MC held up the card and announced the second place winner was Craig Titus. There was a smattering of boos in the audience, but no one on stage could have predicted what happened next. To their shock and horror, Craig absolutely lost it. With a red splotchy face, he ripped his competition number off and threw it on the ground. He was visibly enraged. Later, the MC described him as looking like Charles Manson. Before the rest of the winners could be announced, Craig stormed off the stage. He continued to rampage behind the curtain, destroying furniture and his own trophy in the process. The spectators were left stunned. There was no way the committee could let the outburst slide. The consequences would be harsh. Craig Titus might have just destroyed his entire career. Coming up, Craig's life takes an unexpected turn, and he's left to pick up the pieces. The I-5 Strangler, the Southside Dentist, the Berlin Butcher. Meet the many faces of evil in the Spotify original from ParCast, Serial Killers. Every Monday and Thursday, take a journey through the origin, evolution, and madness of a real-life murderer, exploring the reasons why they lived to kill. Using extensive research and details you won't hear anywhere else, Serial Killers takes an in-depth look at the horrors beyond the headlines. With hundreds of episodes available to binge and new ones released weekly, get to know the killers, crimes, and cases that left an indelible stain on history. Follow the Spotify original from ParCast, Serial Killers. Listen free only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. 
With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. In 1995, 30-year-old Craig Titus should have been on the cusp of success as a professional bodybuilder, but a second-place win at the USA Championship was the final straw. Craig's temper exploded on stage in front of the judges, leaving the entire arena shocked and appalled. Bodybuilding has a strict code of conduct at competitions, Athletes are expected to remain respectful of each other and officials at all times. Penalties for behavior like Craig's ranged from steep fines to expulsion from competition. For his unsportsmanlike tantrum, the National Physique Committee suspended Craig for six months. But that wasn't the only thing threatening his future. Craig's very life seemed to take a nosedive there was a real possibility he would be in prison by the time his suspension was up. Exactly how long he would be away from the stage depended on the outcome of his ongoing legal drama. In October, three months after the competition in Denver, Craig was back in court to be sentenced for his part in a drug scheme. He maintained that he'd done nothing more than play middleman between a buyer and a seller, but the situation turned out to be a bit more complicated. The truth was that the man who'd approached Craig about buying ecstasy figured he'd have a connection because Craig was already doing drugs, specifically anabolic steroids. Steroid use was an open secret in bodybuilding at the time. Given that Craig had gone from 205 to 270 pounds over the course of about a year, no one was surprised to learn he'd been juicing. There were few top competitors who weren't. The thing was, no one talked about it, let alone admitted it publicly. But in the end, Craig's honesty worked in his favor. The judge decided he had played a small part in the scheme and that prison time should no longer be on the table. Still, he wasn't going to get off easy. Craig was sentenced to eight months in a halfway house, a government-run facility for drug users, followed by eight more months of house arrest. After that, he would remain on parole for three years and be subject to regular drug tests. And that wasn't all. He was also required to complete 300 hours of community service. Even with that laundry list of consequences, Craig might have felt like he was getting off easy. He wasn't going to prison after all. And when his suspension from the NPC was up, he'd still be able to compete. From where he sat, the deal was pretty sweet. Others thought so too. Friends started calling Craig the Teflon man because nothing seemed to stick to him. He might've been suspended from the sport and on his way to live in a halfway house, but Craig carried on as if nothing had changed. In November, less than one month after his sentencing, He met up with some bodybuilding buddies at the Fitness America Pageant Championship near his new home. The outing was as much for pleasure as it was for business. FAP was a women's fitness organization, so it would be a day spent gazing at well-toned and beautiful women. Craig was enjoying the sights when one competitor in particular 
caught his attention. She was 23-year-old Kelly Ryan, a new kid on the fitness scene. She was making quite the impression on others at the event. A major aspect of the pageant was the short routine, a sort of combination of a gymnast floor routine and a cheerleading act. It could get pretty theatrical, complete with costumes and music. Kelly hadn't done that well in the physique rounds, but her short routine blew the other competitors out of the water. Few knew it at the time, but her background was perfectly suited to the event. She'd done gymnastics from a young age, training with the same coach as Olympian Mary Lou Retton. In college, Kelly had been captain of the varsity cheer squad, as well as leader of the dance team. So it was no wonder that her routine featured just about every trick and flip in the book, all executed to perfection. She could launch herself so high in the air, people called her Flying Ryan. Craig was immediately smitten, telling all of his friends that he had to meet her. In the end, Kelly tied for sixth place, a respectable finish for someone who'd been in the sport for less than a year. Craig made his way backstage to introduce himself. But when he found her, she was with her parents. He might have been surprised that his charms weren't enough to lure her away for a private conversation. The thing was, Kelly had already heard plenty about Craig Titus. Unlike most of the women he encountered, she was turned off by his bad boy persona. She had always been the wholesome, all-American type. In addition to gymnastics, she was on her high school's volleyball, basketball, and soccer teams. Because she was so athletic, her mom pushed the school to allow her to take bodybuilding instead of physics. According to Kelly, her mom hoped the additional weight training would help her mentally as well as physically. It's unclear whether her mother knew, but at the time, Kelly had bulimia. While everyone else saw an outgoing gifted athlete, on the inside, Kelly was struggling. That battle continued from high school into college when Kelly finally received the professional help she needed. After completing a hospital rehab program, she realized graduation was fast approaching. The future was coming whether she was ready for it or not. Luckily, she found direction in the unlikeliest of places. Flipping through channels one day in early 1995, she happened to stumble across a fitness competition on ESPN. She was intrigued. The sport seemed tailor-made for her specific set of skills. As fate would have it, Kelly's first chance to compete practically fell in her lap soon afterward. Her cheer coach at the time was a promoter of the South Carolina State Bodybuilding Show. That year was the first to feature a women's competition. Because it was a new event, the showing was slim. Kelly was up against 12 other women and took first place right out of the gate. It was like a sign from the universe. This was what she was meant to do. She immediately got to work in the gym, hiring one of the most sought-after personal trainers in the game. She started eating like a professional bodybuilder, with restrictions so intense it was basically a socially accepted version of her past disordered eating habits. Only this time, instead of purging, she'd work out. A lot. To make ends meet and keep up her cardio, 
Kelly taught aerobics classes at a local gym. There is an abundance of research showing the benefits of exercise on one's mental health, but it's not often employed as part of a treatment plan for people with a history of disordered eating. Research has shown with proper supervision and support, working out can have plenty of positive outcomes. These include more body satisfaction, increased strength, and overall improvement in quality of life. On the flip side, exercise can also serve as a tool for disordered eating. While it's not officially recognized by the DSM-5, the National Eating Disorders Association lists compulsive exercise as its own disorder, with all the same physical and psychological consequences. None of this is to say that all bodybuilders display disordered eating or extreme exercise, but such intense workout routines can be both good and bad. For Kelly, it was complicated. But she wasn't one to let discomfort get in the way of her dreams. Where anyone else might have backed off, she pushed harder. Unlike a lot of young people looking to go pro, Kelly didn't harbor dreams of becoming rich and famous off her sport alone. She knew perfectly well that contests, especially for women, didn't pay enough to live on. For that, she would need to use her marketing degree, parlaying her titles into sponsorships and brand deals. Basically, she was aiming to become the pre-internet version of an influencer, which meant her image was everything. Kelly was right at the start of her career when Craig approached her that November, but she knew that associating with the bad boy of bodybuilding was not going to get her where she wanted to go. Her rejection intrigued Craig more than anything. After the pageant, she returned home to South Carolina, but he always kept an eye out for her from afar. For the most part, however, Craig's main focus was still his own career. As always, he desperately wanted to earn his pro card. His six-month suspension ended in January of 1996. Craig returned to the competition stage that June in the NPC USA Men's Championship. Just one year earlier, Craig had been the favorite to win this same contest. This time, however, expectations were low. He'd just spent eight months in a halfway house, so everyone believed he'd be competing as a natural bodybuilder without steroids. But Craig shocked everyone when he stepped onto the stage looking just as good as ever. It turned out that Craig Titus made a better underdog than top dog. One year after his surprising defeat, he finally won it all. After so many challenges, Craig had secured his place among the professionals. Once again, his emotions took control. With tears in his eyes, he dedicated the win to his late son. After such a stunning comeback, all the talk about his drug issues faded away. Craig's career was at an all-time high. Now that he had his pro card, his dreams of fame and fortune were finally within reach. A few months later, it looked like Kelly's career was poised to take off too. She returned to Southern California for the 1996 Fitness America pageant. And this time, she won the whole thing. But the excitement died down a lot faster than she'd expected. She had been sure that a big victory like that would come with magazine spreads and sponsorship offers. When none of that came to pass, 
she was bitterly disappointed. At least part of the problem was that she lived on the other side of the country. Everyone who was anyone in fitness lived in California, specifically Venice Beach. So Kelly decided to head to the West Coast. Since the FAP win didn't bring her any closer to her ultimate goal, Kelly changed tracks. Unfortunately, accepting the FAP prize money meant she no longer qualified as an amateur, according to the National Physique Committee's rules. She'd have to sit out an entire year of competition to regain her status. So that's what she did. For the rest of 1996 and a good part of 1997, Kelly hung around Venice Beach. She attended events to continue networking. And of course, she trained just as hard as ever. One person who was especially excited to see her in the area was Craig Titus. Now that they were both on the West Coast, they ran into each other all the time. Whenever he got the chance, Craig asked Kelly out. The attention might have been flattering. Craig was a good-looking guy and very charming, but Kelly was not interested in being another one of his conquests. Besides, now that Craig's comeback had mended his ego, he was right back to his bad habits. At the start of 1997, Craig's temper was worse than ever. He and another bodybuilder got into a fist fight in the gym. The reason, according to Craig, was that the guy was saying the wrong things. He then went on to brag about it in a magazine interview. People started whispering that Craig was juicing again, but he was still on probation and was regularly drug tested. No one thought he could be that stupid. And yet in July of 1997, Craig was back in the same Louisiana courtroom he'd stood in almost two years earlier. Six of his samples tested positive for steroids. Each one constituted a violation of the terms of his agreement with the state. The judge had taken it easy on him before, but she'd left him with a harsh warning. If he ever came up dirty, she'd send him straight to jail. So that's where Craig was headed, for real this time. Coming up, Craig has to make up for lost time while Kelly fights her way to the top. Now, back to the story. In 1997, 32-year-old Craig Titus, the bad boy of bodybuilding, was sentenced to two years in prison for violating the terms of his release. While he headed to jail, 25-year-old Kelly Ryan hoped to rejoin the amateur ranks of the National Physique Committee. She made what she hoped would be her triumphant return in July of 1998 at the USA Women's Fitness Competition. Like Craig Titus before her, Kelly was after her pro card, Unfortunately, she came up short and finished seventh overall. Her next shot was a month later at the NPC Team Universe Nationals. In the meantime, Kelly completely reworked her regimen and hired a new nutritionist. Somehow, she was able to lose eight pounds despite already maintaining a low body fat percentage. It couldn't have been a pleasant month, but the hard work paid off. For the first time at an NPC competition, Kelly took first place overall. She was now a pro and a member of the International Federation of Bodybuilders, or IFBB. 
The win was everything she'd hoped for. Her determination paid off in the form of magazine features and endorsement deals. It had taken three years of physically punishing workouts and intense dieting, but Kelly Ryan finally felt like she'd made it. Suddenly, she was riding the roller coaster of fame. In addition to continued training, she made appearances and scheduled photo shoots. It was exciting, but probably a bit overwhelming. Before she knew it, almost a year had gone by in a surreal blur. Somewhere during this time, Craig was released from prison. He'd opted for a longer stay to avoid parole. So as far as the law was concerned, he was a free man. He immediately dove back into training, working harder than ever to regain the momentum he'd lost. Craig often said that he felt those two years were stolen from him. He even started telling people he was still 32, when in reality, he was 34. But whatever age he wanted to be, his friends were still eager to celebrate him. So they threw him a belated birthday party. Of all the old friends and acquaintances he saw that night, Craig was happiest to reconnect with Kelly. He'd asked her out enough times in the past to know that she wasn't interested. The fact that he'd just gotten out of prison certainly didn't help. So instead of asking her on a date, Craig begged for the chance to get to know her as a friend. This seemed to soften her attitude toward him, at least for a little bit. Being a nice Southern girl, Kelly wouldn't say no to friendship. All it took was opening the door a tiny crack before Craig started popping up everywhere. In June of 1999, Kelly made her first competition appearance as a professional at the World Pro Fitness Classic in Detroit. Craig was in the front row. When he wasn't cheering for Kelly, he was telling the other pros about his plans to revitalize his career. He'd already gained back the weight he lost in prison. Considering he'd only been on the outside for a month or so, it was a remarkably fast recovery. Despite his recent drug charge, no one in the sport was hassled about whether or not he'd gotten back into steroids. Besides, Craig's more immediate goal was winning Kelly's affection. And to everyone's surprise, his persistence paid off. By the time they were back from Detroit, Craig and Kelly were officially dating. It was obvious why Craig was into Kelly. She was kind and beautiful, recently dubbed the princess of fitness. Not to mention her career was truly exploding. It made sense that Craig would want to hitch his star to her wagon. What no one could understand was what Kelly saw in him. That included her parents. In February of 2000, Craig met her father for the first time. He'd just placed a rather disappointing eighth place in his first competition since prison, but he was dealt an even harsher blow when he asked Kelly's father's blessing to marry her. The answer, absolutely not, no way. Not long after that uncomfortable encounter, Kelly and Craig both competed in the Fitness International, also known as the Arnold, the FI was one of the two biggest competitions in professional bodybuilding. The Arnold was Kelly's biggest competition to date. Everything she'd done before was only to get her to this point. At the same time, 
Craig hoped the event would fan the embers of his smoldering career. It would have been a romantic sight to have both Kelly and Craig place first, but it just wasn't in the cards. Kelly took home the top prize while Craig placed 10th. If anyone was braced for an old-fashioned Titus tantrum, they were disappointed. Craig seemed genuinely happy to let Kelly have her time in the spotlight, celebrating her win right alongside her. Most people had never seen the supportive side of Craig Titus. It was kind of endearing. The longer he was with Kelly, the more it seemed like his hard edges were starting to soften. Kelly tried to tell the people in her life as much. She wrote a letter to her old trainer saying there was a whole side to Craig that no one else saw. Eventually, the couple won over the people who mattered. In June of 2000, 35-year-old Craig married 28-year-old Kelly at the Little White Chapel in Las Vegas. But it didn't take long for Craig and the relationship to come back under fire. Shortly after the marriage, he was retroactively disqualified from the only two competitions he'd been in. Bodybuilding events didn't test for steroids, but they did test for diuretics, drugs used to dehydrate the body and make the skin adhere tighter to the muscle. The disqualification didn't wipe out any major victories, but it was still pretty embarrassing. Craig was far from competitive now, barely making top 10 at his events. Luckily, he had enough friends in the media to still get a magazine cover here and there, but more and more his name was only mentioned in connection with Kelly. And she wasn't getting much positive press herself. After her FI win, she struggled to take first in most of the other major competitions. Usually finishing top three, if not second, she was losing ground to more muscular athletes. She also found herself being passed over for magazine covers and spreads. Publications preferred curvier, more feminine-looking women. The fitness industry seemed rigged against her. She wasn't buff enough to win titles, but she was too buff to sell magazines. The pressure to balance a traditional feminine look with competitive levels of body fat sent many women under the knife. In the 1998 book, Women of Steel, sociologist Maria Lowe estimated that 80% of female bodybuilders had breast augmentation. Kelly relied on her physical appearance to make a living, so under immense pressure, she started looking into some changes. In late 2000, people started to notice her look was shifting. At first, it was small things, some highlights, then a few more. Before they knew it, she was a full-on bottle blonde. Then, things got more drastic. In 2001, she confessed to a friend that she had work done on her face and body. All told, she said she spent $40,000 on plastic surgery. And yet, at that year's Olympia, the second most important international event, Kelly came in third. The bloom was coming off the rose when it came to Kelly's dreams. But if she felt any anger or frustration with the events or judges, she never let it slip in public. For that, she had Craig. Craig was never shy about expressing his opinions. At this point, almost all of them centered around him and Kelly as victims of the establishment. 
The bodybuilding community, on the other hand, worried that Kelly was a victim of Craig. From what people could tell, he was a bad influence on her in more ways than one. Rumors swirled about their lifestyle, mostly that they spent their nights throwing wild parties full of booze, drugs, and sex. Word around town was that Kelly and Craig were swingers. For Craig, an infamous womanizer, it made complete sense. But Kelly was supposed to be a good girl with strong family values. Those who knew the couple best worried Craig was pressuring Kelly into things she wasn't comfortable with. Maybe he was using swinging as a cover for extramarital activities. And Craig was definitely sleeping around. Less than a year into his marriage, he met 24-year-old Melissa James at a fitness event near her hometown of Panama City, Florida. Melissa was very much Craig's type, a pretty dancer and former cheerleader, just like Kelly. They hit it off immediately and things quickly turned physical. When they met, Melissa had been running her own dance studio for five years. It was going well, but she had big dreams for her future and Craig said he could help make them a reality. He suggested she move to California where he knew all kinds of people in fitness and entertainment. Melissa was young and ready for adventure, so it didn't take much to convince her to pack her bags. Unfortunately, what she thought would be an exciting new chapter turned out to be the beginning of the end. Chasing after the bright lights of fame and fortune, She had no idea the move would end up costing her everything. Her happiness, her safety, and ultimately, her life. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We will be back next week with part two of our story. As Craig and Kelly implode, they take Melissa down with them. For more information on Kelly Ryan and Craig Titus, we found Killer Bodies, a glamorous bodybuilding couple, a love triangle, and a brutal murder by Michael Fleeman, extremely helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Scott Stronick, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Megan Hannum, with writing assistance by Georgia Hampton and Terrell Wells, fact-checking by Haley Milliken, and research by Mickey Taylor and Chelsea Wood. I'm Lainey Hobbs. Their names have become larger than life. Their crimes, some of the most heinous in history. Their stories, examined each week on the Spotify original from Parcast, Serial Killers. Every Monday and Thursday, journey past the headlines and into the minds and motives of the murderers who forever changed the face of history. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Serial Killers. Listen free only on Spotify.